in verses 43 through 54. And the last time we were in the Gospel of John, we were talking about a woman, a woman at the well, a woman from Samaria, and Jesus and his disciples found himself at Sychar, and some pretty amazing things happened. Well, something no less amazing is going to happen in this story. And so uh, let's, let's pick up where we are and read our text for the morning. Again, this is John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Let's see what it says. After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right. Let's just be reminded of our context. Remember, Jesus had just come from this particular region. So, again, here's our map we've been looking at for uh, the Gospel of John. And you can see the three different regions. Uh, you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. We have three different particular cities, Jerusalem, Sychar, and Cana of significance to us right now. If we zoom in on the Galilee region, um, you can see a couple cities of interest. First of all, you can see Nazareth. Of course, we all know why that's of significance. Uh, and then there's Cana. I just wanted to show the relationship between Ca uh, Nazareth and Cana. See how close they are together? And then up to the north of the Sea of Galilee, you have Capernaum. And from Cana to Capernaum, you've got about a 16-mile difference. So this whole region is not large at all. It's a very small area. So in this whole region of Galilee, this is going to be what's referred to as uh, Jesus' hometown, basically. Because at one point, Capernaum becomes Jesus' uh, base of operations, but we know he's from Nazareth. But this area of Galilee is very significant. So when Jesus leaves uh, Sychar, which is that region of Samaria, he travels north to Galilee. He comes to Cana. And so that's where our story takes place. Now, it's significant to say that remember when Jesus was in Samaria, in Sychar, and all the people were amazed at all that Jesus was doing, and they said, no longer do we believe in him because of what the woman told us, but now we believe because of what we have heard from Jesus ourselves. And they said, will you please stay with us? And he agreed to stay for two days. Jesus was wildly popular in this area, in this moment. And what had happened was, Jesus said, I must now leave. That's kind of the opposite of what normally happens to uh, pastors, teachers in our day. Uh, if the popularity is there, you better believe I'm sticking around. Uh, but then once I fall out of favor, I'm going to go find somewhere else to go. And Jesus seems to do the opposite, doesn't he? At the height of his popularity in a particular region, what does he say? I have to go now. 
and I'm going to go back to my hometown, and how will I be received? Well, he says, Jesus testified, verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So this is where Jesus was headed. A place of great honor, Samaria, and Sychar, people were praising his name, wanted him to stay. He said, no, I've got to leave, and I've got to go to my hometown where no doubt I will not receive honor. And we start to get insight into the character of Jesus, don't we? Was Jesus here for praise from men? He wasn't. In fact, Jesus humbled himself and calls us to be humble likewise. Now, if you have an NIV this morning, I don't know, some of you might. Your NIV says, now, or uh, now Jesus went, as if time were changing or the previous statement had no significance. But actually it says, for, for Jesus, he's leaving for a particular reason. And that reason is because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. We're going to start to see that this is uh, kind of a particular theme. I just want to read Matthew 13, 53 through 58. Listen to what it says. Jesus had finished the parables. He went away from there. He came to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue, and they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this mighty wisdom and, and works? And is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is his mother not Mary? And are his brothers not James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not with honor except in his hometown and his household. So he did not do many works there because, excuse me, of their unbelief. This is just a sampling of what we get in verse, or chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, he was talking about all of humanity in that circumstance. Jesus comes into the midst of humanity, and how did humanity receive him? Well, they murdered him. They spit on him. They despised him. Jesus comes to his hometown, and how did they receive him? They took offense at him. I want you to imagine uh, just your, your place of paradise. Where is your place of paradise here on earth? Uh, I have a particular... Uh, visual in mind. Probably my visual is not an actual place on earth, uh, but I have visual of what it would look like, okay? Particular scenery, and uh, you, you probably have the same thing. Maybe you've been to a place that's just, you love to go back and visit there. Maybe you were there one time, it captivated you. Um, but we come back to where we actually live, and we imagine what that place looks like, and it's grand and it's beautiful, and we can't wait to get back to that place, and you talk it up, and you tell all your friends about it, right? You actually almost build it up to be something even better than what it actually is, don't you? Um, but imagine if you lived in that place, and it was amazing at first. It's beautiful. You woke up every morning, right? You opened your window, and you drank a cup of coffee, and you looked at it, and you were just amazed, right? You, you couldn't wait every morning to wake up and look at it. But as the days go on, and maybe as the months go on, certainly as the years go on, that place becomes less and less amazing to you, doesn't it? Less and less does that place have significance to you. Because it becomes common. It becomes familiar. And really what we're amazed with is that thing that is unfamiliar. I got an awakening to that when I went back to visit Michigan here not too long ago. And... <laughs> And I uh, went back to my hometown, and as the plane came down, uh, I thought, oh, yeah, 
I remember what it's like over here. Uh, but then as, as I came back and the plane flew into Nashville, I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot how pretty it is here. I forgot how amazing it is to live here when I came from that place where you just look and you can see about, you know, 100 miles in every direction because it's so flat. Uh, the longer I lived here, the less amazing it became to me because it became common. But isn't that the case with people in your life? The people who you are most familiar with are most common to you, and so uh, your guard is kind of down, kind of down around them, isn't it? Let's just say you were married to someone famous. They're not famous to their spouse most of the time, right? Because they're just a common person to them, and they become common and familiar and not amazing, not spectacular, just a normal person. Now, here's the point of all this. For some of us, particularly in the South, I believe this is how the gospel and Jesus himself becomes. We hear the gospel, it's not amazing anymore. We hear stories of Jesus, and it's just, eh. Been there, done that. I've heard that story a million times. I've heard that story since I was a little boy. You know, well, some of you did. And the stories just are not amazing anymore. The gospel is not incredible anymore because it's become common. What a miserable place to be. I certainly don't want to live there where the gospel is not amazing to me. So this is what we had. People, Jesus came back to his hometown. Who's that? That's just Jesus. That's just, there's not, there is nothing special about that boy. I used to babysit him. Okay? There's, there's no big deal about him. I know his whole family. Right? Common. Even when he did something amazing, could they see it? Even when he spoke, they said, yeah, I mean, great guy and everything. Miracle worker, that's, that's great. Savior of the world? I don't think so. That's just, that's just Jesus. I wonder if there are some of us here today who say, yeah, Jesus, great guy and everything. Miracles, he did boatloads of them. You know, I, and I don't, I don't disagree. You know, I think he really did those things. Great guy. Born of a virgin, great miracle. You know, that was good. Good stories. Savior of the world? Eh, I don't know. Could it be that Jesus is so common that you've been blinded to his true identity? I think for some in this room, I, I think it's very possible that even you have come to this church week after week and you hear Jesus, you hear the gospel, and he's common, common. Great guy, that Jesus. Savior of the world? I don't know. I don't know about that. Could it be that Jesus has become so common that you're careless and comfortable in his presence? I, I think maybe, yeah. We forget who this guy is. He is God, after all. He is the Savior of the world. And so what we're about to see is a guy who encounters Jesus, says, great miracle worker, great guy, Savior of the world? I don't know. But then all of a sudden we see a switch flip, and he says, yes, Savior of the world. There's a difference between seeing a historical Jesus who works miracles, great guy sent from God, and Savior of the world. 
different categories. One category is not a saving faith in the Messiah. The other is. So let's see how the story plays out. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Okay, so the Galileans welcomed him. Pause for a second, because this is, doesn't make sense to the plot line so far. Jesus said, I have to leave Sychar, the Samaritans, where I'm welcomed, and I have to go to the place of my hometown, and we all know that I'm not going to receive honor there. So he says, so I must go to the place where I will not receive honor. But then the very next verse says, and so they welcomed him. You think it would say, so the Galileans rejected him, because he gets no honor there, right? That's what we would think it said. But the problem is that Jesus is not getting the honor due his name. Now, he's getting honor. Honor in what way? Honor as a miracle worker. Honor as a guy sent from God. But not honor as the Savior of the world. That's what he did not get. So, it says, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So, the Galileans in that area, they were down in Jerusalem when he was there, and they saw the mighty things that he did. Uh, back in John chapter 2, verses 22, uh, 23 and 25, it says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his names when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, that sounds like really good news, but then listen to what it says next. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And you remember, when we were in that passage, it actually says they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. That is, they believed in him and the signs and wonders he was doing, but they did not believe in him as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior of the world. Many believed because of the signs, and what did they believe? They believed the same as Nicodemus. We just found in John chapter 3. You remember how Nicodemus believed? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, came, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus believed that Jesus was a great miracle worker, but not necessarily the Savior of the world. For we know that no one can do these kind of things unless God is with him. I'm not denying you're from God. I'm not denying you're a teacher. We know that, but who are you really? Remember, Nicodemus wanted to get to the heart of it. Who, who are you? We know you're sent from God and everything, but who are you? So this man was very similar that he's about to meet. Just remember something about signs as we get there. Hopefully you're enticed by the title today, Signs and Wonders. What does that have to do with anything? We're going to get there in just a second. But signs signify, don't they? Don't signs tell you about something else? Okay, so Jesus was doing signs in Jerusalem. Okay, what did the signs signify? That Jesus was a miracle worker? Was that the point of the signs? I'm going to do a miracle so that you know I'm a miracle worker. No. I'm going to do a miracle and signs and wonders so that you know I am the Christ. So that you know that the message I'm telling you is verifiable. So having seen the signs that he did at the Passover feast, they welcomed him as a man sent from God, a great teacher, a great miracle worker, but not as the Messiah like the place he just came from, Sychar. Okay, verse 46. Story's building. 
So he came again to Cana in Galilee. So we know just not the general region of Galilee, but he goes to a particular place, Cana. He's been to Cana before. We've talked about that. It's where he turned the water into wine. So he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official. We remember where Capernaum was. It was at the north side of the Sea of Galilee. We remember where Cana was, okay, about 16 miles apart. When Jesus comes into the region, news of him spreads. And this official says, oh, the miracle worker came. Great, because I am in need of a miracle. And here's what he says. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. This man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, and he went to him, and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. His son was at the point of death. Now, who is this official? The, the word here, if you look at it, it's very, very similar to the word king, and the reason is because he was an official, he was a servant of the king, or he was a royal official. He served the king directly. Pretty amazing. What king did he serve? guy named Herod Antipas. He was ruler of Galilee. You might have heard the name Herod before, King Herod. Different King Herod. That King Herod you know about most significantly is, is the Herod that uh, was alive during the, during the nativity story that we normally read. Uh, he was the ruler of Judea. He is the one responsible for the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem that we call Herod's temple. The temple that was there, he's the guy responsible for that. He's the one where the Magi came into town and he's the one that had all the babies killed. That's Herod the Great. That's this guy's father. Okay, so this Herod is ruler of Galilee. And this is the guy that this official serves. Okay? When he had heard that there was a great miracle coming, he went to seek healing for his son. I want to pause here and ask a question. I, I, if you have not asked this question, I, I just wonder if anything bad has ever happened to you. <laughs> what we consider to be bad. His son is sick. Jesus comes to town. He runs to Jesus out of his need and said, heal my son. Question is, I think a question we should ask and consider, is it always God's will to heal? Is it always God's will to heal? Now, most of you sitting here already know the answer to that. However, most in the Christian world, I think, do not know the answer to that. I'm going to read a quote from a heretic. I'm going to just preface that by saying that, okay? I'm going to read a quote from the opposite side of the spectrum. This is from Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson is pastor of Redding, uh, Church, Bethel Church, Redding, California. Okay, that's where Jesus' culture came from. Here's what he says. In answer to the question, does, is it always God's will to heal? Here's what he says. How can God choose not to heal someone when he already purchased their healing? His blood was, was his blood enough for all sin or just certain sins? Were the stripes he bore only for certain illnesses or for certain seasons of time? When he bore stripes in his body, he made a payment for our miracle. He already decided to heal. You can't decide not to buy something after you've already bought it. If you're confused by that, rightly so. Here's what he says. How can God choose not to heal someone when he already purchased their healing? Now, what, what healing was purchased? Physical healing? No. So it makes no sense, does it? What kind of healing was purchased? A spiritual healing that we will have for all eternity. Yes. Did Jesus die on a cross and bear the wrath of God so that we might never become physically sick? Absolutely not. I had to add this little quote, and he says just a, just a few sentences later, listen to this. 
take, this is Bill Johnson again, take risk, pray for people, not, capitalized, not, if it be thy will kind of prayer. In the thousands of people I've seen healed, I've never seen anyone healed from that kind of prayer. In other words, don't pray, Lord, if it be your will, send healing. But instead, claim the healing. It is always God's will to heal. So just claim it. If you don't get it, it's your fault, not God's. Wrong. Wrong. It is not, I will answer that question plainly, it is not always God's will to heal your illness. And that does not make him a bad God. We will all die. Of which of those illnesses is he going to heal you? At one point, we are all going to die. Now listen to this. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now who prayed that? Jesus. Do you think he got that right or wrong, that kind of prayer? The if thy will be done kind of prayer. I think he got it right. Let's, let's just take it from that. So when we pray and we are sick, should we run to our Savior? Absolutely. Should we depend on his mercy and his grace? Yes. Should we anticipate without a doubt that if we have enough faith, he will heal our body? No. Should we anticipate that his will will be done, that he will be glorified? Absolutely. Yes. Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Should we pray the kind of prayer that says thy will be done? Absolutely. Yes. Remember Paul's prayer? 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Is it always God's will to heal? Well, Paul must have been doing something wrong. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And as we've said before, can't you throw everything into calamities that I don't want it to be this way? Absolutely. For when I am weak then I am strong. The purpose of the healing of this boy, as we will see, was so that people would see a sign and know this is the Christ, not this is a miracle worker. Run to him whenever you have need. Or is that the kind of Jesus you think he is? That he's just waiting around, not really getting involved unless you come and plead with him, and until you have a problem, leave Jesus alone. Is, is that him? Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, this is good. Jesus said to him, he said, come heal my son. That, and he left it at that, right? Jesus does not go into much theological debate with him or even answer his question. He, he doesn't, I love that he doesn't answer his question, like his plea. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Statement of fact or criticism? Just think about it for a second. Statement of fact or criticism? Why did John write the book of John, the Gospel of John? So that we may believe. And what did he testify about? These signs are written so that you may believe. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs, but these are written so that you may believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Another significant thing here that you find in the Greek and not in our English is that when it says you, it's actually a plural you to the masses and not a you official. No, it's a, it's a plural you. Jesus is talking to the masses here. He's saying, unless you, it's like someone asks you a question and, and it's saying, I'm not, you ask me a question and I say, man, almost like you're a representative of humanity, right? You, you humans, right? You, you're just not going to believe unless you see signs and wonders, will you? That's what he's saying. Signs and wonders. Let's just pause here for a second. Signs and wonders. When we look back at human history, and we could say biblical history, but they're one and the same. Biblical history, human history, we see three periods of time, three periods of time, where signs and wonders are performed. The era, the era surrounding Moses and Joshua. Do you remember some miracles that happened in that circumstance? Just think about Egypt. Okay, burning bush scenario. Okay, lots of, lots of signs, signs and wonders happening there. Another period we find is Elijah and Elisha during the prophetic reign, the beginning, the, the initiation of the prophets, Elijah. Okay, Elijah and Elisha, period of about 65 years. Remember, it even got to be that uh, uh, after he was dead, someone fell in his grave and he touched his bones and he came back to life. Remember that story? Okay, so we see miracles happening in that period of time, and it lasted about 65 years, that period of time. By the way, the period for Moses and Joshua, that period of time of miracles was about 65 years. And then the next period of time where we see miracles, signs, and wonders is when? Jesus. Think about great miracle workers in the Bible. Great miracle workers. How many can you think of? Just think about it for a second. Other than Moses, Joshua, that era, Elijah and Elisha, that area, and Jesus and the apostles, that area, how many more miracle workers were there? This was the time, you probably can't think of any, by the way. I'm not actually challenging you. I'm just letting you know. You're probably not going to think of any. Uh, there, there are three periods of time where miracles were happening, miracles, signs, and wonders. And you, don't, you know there were also three periods of time where the message of God was being proclaimed and needed to be solidified as coming from God himself. And how was the message confirmed? Through signs and wonders. The message was confirmed through signs and wonders. Signs and wonders prove the reliability of a message and the credibility of the messenger. In this particular story, the message and the messenger really are one and the same. The message is salvation in Jesus Christ. And by the way, he is salvation himself. It is Jesus. He is proving that what he's saying and who he is when he says, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, which he did say, actually, which is why they killed him. Some will say he never claimed to be, but he did. That's, that's why they killed him. Okay, are there any other... Uh, um, Any other uh, periods of signs and, and wonders? No, we focus here on, on the era surrounding Jesus and the apostles. Now, I, I want to just quote three texts here for you about signs and wonders. Hebrews 2, 2 through 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... 
How we shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, that is the message, was declared at first by the Lord, and it, the message, was attested to us by those who heard, while God bore witness to what? The message, how? By signs and wonders and miracles of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How were all of these things confirmed that the message was the right message, that this message actually was from God, signs and wonders? John 2, 18 and 19, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them. You know this one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus' great and final sign and miracle was his own resurrection from the dead. Confirmed the message and the messenger in his resurrection from the dead. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that he did in your midst. How was Jesus proven to be the Messiah? Signs and wonders. The signs and wonders were not an end in themselves, but they were signs that signify. And what did they signify? This man is more than a miracle worker. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. I want to read one more thing before we, before we move on in our text. John 20, 27 through 31. Listen to this. This is after the resurrection. Jesus said uh, to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And Jesus did many other signs in their presence, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What was written? The signs and wonders that point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Let's look at see next verse 49. So Jesus answers, you're just not going to believe in me unless you see signs and wonders, will you? And the official uh, must be that he doesn't really know how to respond to that because then he says this. Uh, Sir, come down before my child dies. He just acts like that wasn't said, I guess. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. So rather than responding to Jesus' remarks, he basically just repeats his request. I, I asked you if you'll come and heal my son. I don't know what that response was, but will you come heal him? Will you come heal my son? I know you can work miracles, so will you please just come heal him? Jesus grants his request. The man got what he wanted from Jesus. He said, go, your son lives. He's fine. So you would think in this scenario, listen, if it were me, and I had come 15 miles on foot to see Jesus, and I, my, one of my three daughters is dying at home, okay, and I left my family. I left my wife is there in some kind of crazy panic of, so, of course. My family is all upset. I rush to get the miracle worker. He says everything's going to be okay. I would do what? I'm going to rush back home. But what does he do? He, he doesn't. Because we see next that when he meets the servant on the way, he says, what time did he start getting better? Yesterday at 1 o'clock. Yesterday at 1 It was only 15 miles away. Yesterday at 1 o'clock is when he started getting better. So 
So the guy postpones his visit going back. I don't know what he was doing. Uh, I don't know why he didn't go back. It could be, just remember, he had an important role. And it could be that if he didn't go do what he was supposed to do, he, he would have been punished. It could be. Okay? This guy was an official of the king, but we don't know what he was doing. Bigger question, though. Then why did he not go right home, I think, is this. Why did Jesus seemingly criticize him for needing to see signs and wonders and then grant his request and give him a sign? You're not going to believe unless you see signs and wonders, will you? But I'm going to give you a sign anyway. That seems strange. So he gives him what he wants. And it says, and he, and he believed. Remember this. Sin keeps us, mankind, from recognizing his creator. Because what we're about to see is that, yes, he believed in the great miracle worker sent from God. But that belief was not what Jesus required of him. I believe the miracle worker said, yes, I'm going to trust in that. But still, we're not given any indication that he believed in him as the Savior. He believed him as the Savior of his son who was sick, made him better. But that's, that's not enough, is it? Remember Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven from all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known to them is plain, but God has shown to them, for God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal powers, divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, humanity, is without excuse in recognizing their Creator. What keeps us from seeing Him? Sin, our unrighteousness in which we suppress the truth. Remember John 1.10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. How could it be that the created does not know the Creator? How can it be that the Creator is standing right in front of you and the greatest thing you could ask from Him is, will you make my son better? That's all I want from you. I know you created everything, by the way. All things came into existence from you and for you and uh, you're the, the image of the invisible God and everything. Uh, will you just make my son better, please? That's all I want. Now, if he had seen him as the Savior of the world, as God in the flesh, the conversation, I believe, would have been a little bit different. Maybe it would have looked something like the woman at the well who immediately ran and said, you have to come see this man. You have to know he's the Savior of the world. You've got to come see him. Look for yourself. All he was interested in is, fix my problem, Jesus. Fix my problem. And then he went away. Of course, you've got to see how often that is us, right? You run to Jesus, fix my problem. I'm not going to tell the people you're the Savior of the world or anything. I'm not really concerned about that right now. Just fix my problem, Jesus. Jesus, great problem fixer. Or Jesus, great Savior of the world. Chapter 4, verse 51. So the man believed. He went on his way, doing whatever he had to do. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him, and they told him his son was recovering. And so he asked the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour when the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said, Your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. Now, stop. 
I thought he already believed. Remember, before he believed the word. But then later on, when he meets the servant and he says he started getting better, he got better at 1 o'clock yesterday, and he thinks 1 o'clock yesterday is exactly when, I, when, when that man said he's going to be okay. Exactly. Right when he said it, that's when my son... Wait a minute, this guy's more than just a miracle worker, isn't he? Because he initially believed... You need to come put your hand, you need to come touch him. That's how miracles are done. That's how healing is done, right? Come and lay your hands on him and touch him. No. Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, thinks it. And it happens instantaneously. There could have been 16 mile difference, there could have been a 16 million mile difference, and it wouldn't have made any difference. Jesus Christ acts, and time is of no consequence to our Savior. He himself believed in all his household. I would think so, right? Wouldn't that be the kind of event where you say, yes. So he goes, now he goes home and now he tells them what? Now he tells them, how did they, how did they know about Jesus unless he told them now? See, before yesterday, he wasn't concerned about running home and telling his family, but today, now he is. Now I say, wait, 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 wait. I didn't realize how significant this event was. Now I'm running home and now I'm telling them, here's how our son got better. Here's how he hit. It was this man. This man, Jesus, and now his whole household believed in him. Now the whole household believed. Unbelievable. Verse 54, now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he uncovered from Judea to Galilee. Now it's all about signs, isn't it? Jesus, or John has been tracking signs and people's reaction and response to the signs. That's what's been happening the entire Gospel of John. I just want to give a little summary. Each chapter we've gone through has been tracking signs. The fact that Jesus is, first of all, the Son of God, Savior of the world. And then signs that show that fact to be true and the people's response to it. That's, that's all that John has been doing. In fact, that's the purpose for his whole gospel, right? He already told us that. But here's maybe some of what we've seen. Chapter 1, verse 12. All who believe become children of God. That's in his intro. Chapter 2, verse 11. The disciples believe when he turns water into wine. Not mass conversions in that incident, but the disciples believed. Chapter 3, verse 12. Nicodemus does not believe. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, John goes on a little discourse and he says, Now, this Savior of the world, it's just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, all who look on the Son and believe, they will be saved. This is where John 3.16 comes from. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But he didn't come in the world to condemn the world because they stood condemned already. He came to save. So look on the Savior, and if you look on him and believe, you will be saved. Okay, so then it continues on. Chapter 3, verse 36, again, John is talking again. Whoever believes will be saved. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 41, that's when Jesus leaves that region and he goes to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are the one group of people who we think, well, they're not going to believe for sure. But this is where we see the woman at the well, and she believes. You won't believe the sign this man did. He told me all I ever did. Come. Everybody else, come. Everybody come and see the Savior. And many more believe, not because of her account, but because they heard it from his own mouth. So now there are many seeing the signs that Jesus did, and they're believing. 
And then you get to this next story. There's an official who sees Jesus as a great miracle worker, and he believed that he was a great miracle worker. But that belief wasn't enough to save him. He needed saving faith in Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus does a sign for him. He comes to see that sign as supernatural. This can't just be a regular run-of-the-mill miracle worker, if there is such a thing, by the way. But he sees this guy is more. This guy is more. And the official believes. A couple things here. You can welcome Jesus into your life. Just like the Galileans welcomed into their area. You can think that Jesus is a great miracle worker, which they did. You can believe in him, but this kind of belief in the historical miracle-working Jesus is not what we are called to for salvation. Because there are many who believe that Jesus was a historical figure. There are many who believed that he actually lived. In fact, everyone at that time believed he was real because uh, they saw him with their own eyes. That kind of belief that he actually did miracles. Were there people who saw Jesus standing there, saw him do a miracle? It was undeniable but they didn't believe in him as the savior of the world. Absolutely. So looking back in time and saying, man, Jesus really was a miracle worker. Jesus was a real guy. That's not what we're called to for saving faith. So what kind of, faith, what kind of belief are we looking for? What kind of belief do we need in Jesus Christ? We need to be careful to not misinterpret the signs that John is so careful to show us. The sign is this, he is the savior of the world. Believe it. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What kind of belief? The kind of belief that says in your heart, God raised him from the dead, which was his greatest sign he ever performed. And so when I say I believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, I'm saying that last and greatest sign that he did proved himself to be who he said he was, the savior of the world. And I believe, and I believe with all my heart, he is the savior of the world. And if I believe that, he will necessarily be Lord of my life. Belief from the heart is what matters. Belief that the resurrection from the dead was the greatest sign he ever did. So the question today is this. Has it become commonplace for you, this gospel, this Jesus? It's not amazing to you anymore. It's not wondrous to you. The fact that you were a sinner, an entire complete rebellion against the God who created you and in the midst of your rebellion running from him, he ran towards you and saved you. That's not amazing to you anymore? That he had grace on you? That he had mercy on you? That's not amazing. That's just common. Yeah, that's the gospel. Yep. That's what I believe. But it doesn't affect me. It, it doesn't do anything to my heart. I think we have a problem. I think we have a big problem. Or could it be, that's for those of you who are genuinely saved, you have saving faith in Christ, but that faith, that salvation to you has become all too common, and so now your guard is down, 
You're not too concerned about what you do, how you act anymore, right? Just like living with someone in your family, they all see your messy stuff because you're not too concerned about what you look like around them. You can leave stuff laying around, but if company's coming over, we got to clean up real quick. Is that how you are with the gospel? Is that how you are maybe with church? Come to church, put my churchiness on because I'm around church people. When I go home, I can strip it off because I'm just around my family then. Or I'm just at work then. Is that how you act? I'm very familiar with what that looks like. I grew up with that. That's not what we're called to. We're called to genuine faith in Christ. And if he's genuine faith, he is your Lord all the time. He never ceases being your Lord. He's your Lord when you sleep and when you dream. He is your Lord when you are awake and at your best, when you are at your worst. He is your Lord. Or could it be that you have heard this gospel message? Maybe, maybe I was your youth pastor even. And now you're not a youth anymore. So you've heard this gospel message, I know you have. Could be that you were raised in church, we had a gospel-proclaiming church, and you've, maybe you had parents who taught you the gospel. You know the stories, you know them well. But could it be that the Jesus that you grew up with was just a great man from God and not the Savior of the world? Jesus has never gripped your heart. I'm going to read one last passage here for you because this is what happens when he grips your heart. We remember in John 1.10, he was in the world, but the world was made through him. The world did not know him. Do you know that was all of us? That was all of us to a certain point. We were, in, we were in darkness. We couldn't see. We couldn't even see the creator standing in front of our face. But here's what happens. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That all of a sudden you realize in the moment... He is not just a miracle worker, not just a historical figure, but all of a sudden, he is the savior of the world. Have you had that time in your life? For some of you growing up in the South, man, that is blurred. I've heard so many stories of a blurred line. I'm sorry for that. For others of you, as it was for me, I was in darkness, someone switched the light on, and man, I knew I was in the light all of a sudden. And it was, an, it was a moment I can reflect back on. But I know, I know that for some of you, you were young when you came to Christ. And you know what? I believe it was genuine. But it's blurred for you, as it is for any child in any circumstance. It's blurred. But could it be that something you thought in your past was you coming to Christ, but it was really just you saying, yeah, I think that this Jesus existed. Yeah, sure. Or was it coming to terms with the fact that this man is the Savior of the world? He is your Savior. He didn't come to save you from physical illness. He came to save your soul from death. He came to save you from your sin and from the very wrath of God that you will get unless you have faith in Him, unless you believe from the heart. And so I call all of us to believe today. Those of you who have been a believer for a long time, believe today. You need to believe today in this moment. Believe and remember the wonder of your salvation. It should never cease to be wonderful to you. That when we sing about it, it grips your heart. We're not just singing songs to sing songs. If that's all we're doing, we might as well not sing any songs. 
There's no point in it. If all you're doing is giving money to give money, stop. If all you're doing is come here to come here, quit. That's not the point. God doesn't look at you any better for that. He's got everything. He can hear more wonderful music than what comes out of our mouths. <laughs> That's not what, you know what he's searching for, though. Your heart's reliance upon him as the savior of the world. Does he have that today? Does he have your heart gripped today? If not, give it to him. If you're a believer, repent and remember and come and draw near to your savior today. Let's pray. Father, you are...